Welcome to Harvest Mission Community Church. You are listening to one of our sermons. So I'm really excited to be able to talk about this section on prayer and fasting. And we're going to look at Matthew 6, verses 5 to 18. And we're continuing our sermon series called Shine. And if you've been with us for the last couple of weeks, you know that the previous few parts that we've been talking about uh, ever since we started studying uh, Matthew 5 and now 6, we've been talking about shining the kingdom, uh, various different aspects of the kingdom. And if you remember, the first part was shining the kingdom lifestyle. We talked about salt and light, how we ought to be uh, people that God is shining upon and also people that God is shining through us in different ways. And then the following week after that, we talked about shining kingdom relationships, right? Not, you know, we talked about adultery and murder and how Jesus is interpreting or reinterpreting what those really Ten Commandments meant. And then last week, we talked about shining the kingdom love, putting our preferences aside, loving our enemies, right? Like loving airdrop and finesse, even though they won the war, okay? We gotta love them, even though they're your enemy. No, I'm just kidding. Um, loving unnaturally, loving unexpectedly. And so today what we're going to talk about is shining the kingdom devotion. Because as we go through and we continue to look through the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is continuing to focus on this idea of the kingdom, how everything about how we live must be governed by this idea of the kingdom, even in our devotion to who he is, in our devotion, whether that's prayer or fasting or other aspects of our devotion. Genuine devotion actually look like? What does it actually mean to have devotion that lasts or endures? Because I I would say most all of us will say, I want my Christianity, my faith to last. Amen? Right? None of us, we want to be like, oh, I'm Christian this year, but then next year I'm not Christian anymore. We all want our devotion to last. And when I was younger, I I thought I was devoted to a lot of different things. And um, this is actually something that I was very devoted to. I loved collecting Pokemon cards, all right? I love collecting Pokemon cards. And don't be, sh- don't be afraid. How many of you have collected Pokemon cards? Come on. There we go. Praise the Lord. We have a good handful of us. Don't be shy. Um, I don't know why, but I just love Pokemon cards. I was obsessed with it. Back then, that was when there was only 150 Pokemon. Now there's like thousands of some Pokemon. And my parents were always like so just discouraged because it would cost a lot of money. And I wasted a lot of my parents' money. But and then I thought I was really devoted to it until, um, you know, there was a bad trade at school. People got in trouble and people met a bad trade. You know what it feels like, those of you who trade Pokemon cards. Um, but it was just a fad, you know. Eventually you grow out of it and then now they're just worthless pieces of paper sitting in a cabinet somewhere. And I realized that wasn't genuine devotion. The next fad that I went through was, um, uh, we can show the next picture. I don't know if any of you know what these are. Beanie Babies, Yes. Beanie Babies, and some of you are too young to know what Beanie Babies are. It was a fad back in the 90s. I don't know if it was worldwide, but definitely in the U.S. Where, and okay, just, uh, this wasn't me. I blame my mom because she loved collecting Beanie Babies. But we were so devoted to collecting Beanie Babies that McDonald's ran a promotion for Happy Meals. Every time you get a Happy Meal, you get these like collectible mini Beanie Babies. So every time we possibly could go to McDonald's, we would go to McDonald's and get a Beanie Baby. Also, I was really happy because I loved McDonald's as a kid. We would always collect these Beanie Babies. But what happened was eventually it died out. So now I'm, I don't know where the Beanie Babies are, but they're somewhere collecting dust in a cabinet somewhere in my home. And also, my poor mother, I ended up cutting all the tags off the Beanie Babies at some time because I forgot or I didn't know that you need the tags on for them to retain any kind of value. So that was sad. But yeah, it just disappeared after some time. I grew up a little bit, and by middle school and high school, my devotion changed from Pokemon cards to Beanie Babies, and then it turned into this. I don't know what anyone knows what this is. Wow, some of you know StarCraft, but this is not StarCraft 2. This is the OG StarCraft that it was released in 1998. How many of you were born after 1998? Raise your hand. OMG. Okay, some of you, I was playing this game in middle and high school when you guys were not even in the womb yet, all right? And uh, this was, I was like super, like, I was part of, me and my friends, we, we made like our own clan team. We had our own clan name. We, I forgot what we were called. Anyways, it doesn't matter. But 
Um, yeah, we were just so gung-ho, and I thought I'd be playing this for a long time, but eventually that died out. And then I think the, the, the thing that I felt like I was most devoted to when I was younger was actually tennis. I grew up playing tennis for a long time. I played for about 10 years growing up, and I played um, three to four days a week. <clears throat> and uh, I'll play, you know, group lessons. Uh, and then when I got into high school, that's when I really kicked it into gear. I'll play almost every single day, especially during the, the tennis season. You play every single day with your tennis team. And we're actually pretty decent as a team. We actually ended up going to the state tournament every year. And this is uh, one of the years that we won the state championship. And we were so happy and so elated because out of the four years over there, we only won one time. And uh, it was something that we just loved. And I, I really thought that that was something I was going to do every single day and for the rest of my life. And some of you guys are looking at the photo and looking at, I'm the guy on the left side, the fourth one, okay? I had a really different hairdo back then, okay? I just got a haircut recently. I don't know if my wife would appreciate that if I still had that. Um, but I really thought I would play tennis for the rest of my life. That was my, because it was such a part of me. And I was like, man, this is going to be for the rest of my life. My whole family plays. I'm like, yeah, this is part of who I am. I'm devoted to it. But the problem was, as soon as I graduated high school, I went to college. I started getting another, involved in other clubs, societies. Things got busy, right, college students? Things got busy. And then after things got busy, what happened? I tried out for the tennis club team at my university. I didn't get in. I wasn't good enough. And I stopped playing tennis. Like literally since that, I almost went cold turkey. Since that time, I've played tennis maybe once or twice a whole a year. I went from playing every day, and you didn't see it in that photo, but when I played in the summer, I would play summers outside like three or four hours a day during the summers. I would get like really dark. And, now I, and I went from that to playing once or twice a week. And what really made me question as I was thinking about this whole concept of devotion is, what does it really mean to be devoted to something? And I thought I was devoted to tennis for the rest of my life, but I played for 10 years, and since then, now 10 years later, I haven't played maybe more than 10 times in the last 10 years. And, and it made me really question, what does it really look like to be devoted? What does an enduring devotion actually look like? What criteria, what factors really contributes to devotion that's going to last? And that's really important for us because if we want to be devoted to our faith, if we want to be devoted to God, then we have to be devoted in, in a way that endures. The, the Cambridge English Dictionary, it talks about devotion. The definition is loyalty and love or care for something or someone. Loyalty or love or care. Are, am I loyal? Was I really loyal? Was I really genuine? Are we really loyal or loving or caring in a way that will endure? And I think this concept of devotion is really important for us in our faith, especially if you look at Luke Chapter 16, verse 13. This is Jesus speaking. It says, No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or, and read it together in yellow, it says, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And so this whole concept of devotion is so important for us to know what contributes to a genuine, enduring devotion. Because if your devotion is misplaced, then what's going to happen? You cannot be half devoted to Christianity. You cannot be half devoted to God. You are either fully devoted to God or you're not at all. And my worry is many of us, we think that we're devoted to God when we're really not. And that's the challenge. That's the question for us this morning. What is it that we're devoted to? And does that devotion reflect a kingdom devotion that Jesus talks about in this passage? And that's what we're going to look at today. When I was thinking about different devotions, there are these three different concepts that come out in this passage that really tease out the depth of the devotion that comes out. And I realized this was true in, in tennis and all the other areas of my life is, is what is my motivation, what is my relationship like, and what does my expression of that devotion come out? And, and the questions for us this morning is, do we have an enduring motivation? Do we have a deep relationship with God? And do we express it outwardly? Because if we have these things, then we're able to say, yes, then God, I am devoted to you in a kingdom way. So let's look at Matthew 6, verse 5 to 18. Hopefully you've turned to it by now. And, and the first point I wanted to talk about is kingdom motivation. How can we have a kingdom motivation that will lead to an enduring devotion to God? 
for the rest of our lives. So let's look, look and read verses 5 to 8. And this is what it says. It says, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for the many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. So Jesus starts this passage out, and it picks up, from last week if you remember, the passage right before this is a teaching on giving. And Jesus uses some of the same terminology. He says, don't give. Don't let your left hand see what your right hand is doing. Give in secret. And Jesus is continuing this language and talking about our motivation, our kingdom motivation, for how we ought to pray and how we ought to be devoted to God. And our question is, what do you think is the proper motivation to pray? What's the proper motivation to pray? And does that motivation actually endure? Does it allow us to pray consistently, frequently in a way that represents who God is. Don't raise your hand, but how many of us, we feel like our prayers are not good enough? How many of us, we feel like when we pray, we're not connecting with God? We feel far from Him. We only pray because we need something, or we only pray because Jesus commanded. We only pray because in life group, your life group leader says, hey, get into smaller groups and pray for one another. I see a lot of heads nodding. Or you only pray because you see other people, you know, wanting to eat the meal. And, okay, let's pray as fast as we can so we can eat. Many of us, we struggle with prayer. Our prayer lives are are a constant struggle. And we're like, God, does it ever get better? Is there any way that I'm actually going to pray well in a way that we're flexible? Well, it comes down to our motivation. It really comes down to why do we pray in the first place? And Jesus here, he gives two examples of people whose motivations are misplaced. And these serve as warnings for how we ought not to pray. And when we look at that, we see in verse 5 and verse 7, repetition and structure are very important. We see this parallel statement. He says, and when you pray, he says that in verse 5 and verse 7, when we look at the structure, we see that he's using this pattern for a particular reason. So what's the structure of this passage? Whenever you read the Bible, just as a quick tip, is if you can identify a structure or a pattern, that will really help you to understand what the passage is saying. So what is the structure of this passage? We see that there is a selected group of people. He, he first highlights a group of people. And then what does he do for that group of people? First, he, ta- he explains their behavior. Then he describes their motivation or what result that they're looking for. And then he redefines what their motivation should be. Okay, so he... He targets their behavior, he looks at their motivation result, and then he gives a redefinition of what they ought to do. So let's look at the two groups of people that he says, shows here in verses 5 through 8. And so in the first section, he talks about hypocrites, right? Hypocrites were those people who would put on a show, look and look good. And he was oftentimes targeting the, the teachers of the law, those who knew all the right things to do and would do it oftentimes to show off. And he was talking about their behavior, and he says their behavior is that they love to stand and pray in public. But that their motivation and result was to be seen by others and receive the reward from other people. So he was saying the reason why they're praying is more for themselves. It's more because they want other people to see them. It's not really for God. It's really for others. The second group of people, who are they? The Gentiles. Their behavior is to heap up empty phrases. It's to be able to pray prayers that are eloquent, that are, you know, empty phrases in the sense of saying things over and over and over again. He's referring to the Gentiles, so, you know, pagan traditions or other religions where you chant a certain mantra and after you chant it a certain way or enough times, then the God or whoever has to answer you. And what is their motivation and result? Is that they are heard for their many words. So there's something about how well they pray or what tone that they pray, or their ability, or their performance that forces the God or their deity to be able to answer them. What is Jesus' then redefinition? What is he really trying to get at here? We see that his redefinition is reorienting the reward system from men, from people, from the world, to God, to our Father. 
And so he sees that the redefinition is being rewarded by men to instead being rewarded by the Father. He, he shows how instead of being seen by others, that we ought to be seen by the Father. Instead of being heard because of our many words, we are to be heard and known by the Father. In, fa- in fact, our Father hears us, but not only does He hear us, but He already knows what we need before we ask. And here, Jesus is getting to the core of human motivation. He's getting to the core, and he, he repeats those phrases, seen and heard and being known. It's because it's those things that really drive and motivate people. It's whether you want to be seen, heard, and known by people, or if you want to be seen, known, and heard by God. This is the core. And, and it's not just about prayer. And I, I think many of us, we might think, oh, this is a passage just about prayer. And so I just got to pray in my closet. I just got to don't do other things in public. But he's talking about just devotion in general. Because when he looks at that verse, he says, he says don't, he doesn't say don't pray like them. He says don't be like them. He doesn't say don't pray like them. He says don't be like them. Don't be motivated in the same way that they are. And our question is, where are we looking to be seen, heard, and known? You ever think about that? Do you, do you seek it out from people? Do you look for it from your boss? Do you look for it from your life group members? Like, I mean, again, don't raise your hand. I mean, how many of us, when you're praying, you're, you're like really self-conscious? You look around to see if people are paying attention or, you know, those like, hmm, Amen, right? And then you feel more encouraged because you feel like your prayer is effective because other people are like, yeah, it's a good prayer. Or is it because you know that your Father in Heaven hears you? He knows what, you're, what you need before you even ask. Because it's only, like, if we pray only for the amens, then what's going to happen when you pray by yourself in your closet? No one's going to say amen to you unless you're praying, like, and, and Jesus, yeah, amen, amen. And then, you know, can you imagine that? You, you have to motivate yourself by saying the amen for yourself. It's not going to endure. Your, your prayer life is not going to last. And, and no wonder oftentimes many of our prayers, our prayer lives are so shallow. And it's so hard to continue to praise because our motivation is misplaced. The key is to have an enduring motivation is that we need to find those things, the, the being seen, being known, being heard, in someone who can guarantee some greater security. In someone who has some kind of authority, someone who has some kind of impact or relevance in your life. Like, I mean, don't be offended right now, but if you turn to your neighbor right now, do you care if you're known, seen, or heard by them? Don't, you don't have to shake your head or say, probably not. I mean, maybe unless that person, you're interested in them or something like that. But most likely not. But if you're doing something for your boss, you're doing something for your parents, if you're doing something for that significant other, it probably matters a lot more. And so if you want to have a properly placed motivation, then you need to find someone, you need to be seen, heard, and known by someone who can guarantee you that significance, that security. Because when you are known, then the motivation for what you're doing completely changes. Um, last Mid-Autumn Festival, we, we just had it recently. And, uh, but last Mid-Autumn Festival, I uh, had a, just a, a minor conflict with my wife. And, um, and it, the reason why we had a conflict was because there's a, there was a difference in how we see like holidays. You know, Mid-Autumn Fe- Festival is, is a time for family, right? And how we spend time with our family. And I remember like, you know, as we're going back and forth about like our different views on family, I think not because of anything that she said, but I think my natural predisposition is to be like discouraged or feel like I haven't, you know, performed well enough. You know, that I think that's just something I've been I've grown up with. That's a constant struggle. And so it was really easy for me to get down and frustrated. And then all I wanted to do was just like go into my own room. Well, well it was her room too. Um, I just wanted to like. <laughs> I just wanted to just be by myself, process it through, just get my stuff done and be like, okay, I just got to do my, just got to be a good husband, just got to do what I can and just move on with it. And, but lo and behold, because we're married, you know, she can't leave me because we're married, praise the Lord. <laughs> um, but we have to talk things out, right? You live in the same household, it's not like you can avoid each other for so long. And so we talked it out and, 
you know, there were like tears involved. My tears, not her tears, okay? Men, men, we can be emotionally connected, amen? Yes, all right? Um, so, you know, there are tears involved, and I was like, oh, man, like, but at the same time, because she was compassionate, she was understanding, I was able to process through the insecurities that I have. Instead of, instead of being motivated to somehow, like, be a better husband by just doing the quote-unquote right things, it allowed me to share honestly how I felt, what my family background, my, what my values are, and allowed me to say, you know what, this is why I really feel the way that I do. And it was in that moment, I mean, I had to not, it wasn't just talking with her, but processing it through with God, that I found that because she was a safe person to share with, that I didn't have to put on a pretense. I didn't have to prove myself in any way. I didn't have to, like, show myself to be someone bigger or better than I was. But I could just be myself, but at the same time to say, you know what, like, I want to just try to love you and care for you, and let's, let's meet in the middle somewhere instead of just being, okay, let me just do what I can. And I realized that, like, because she was able to know me, because she knows my, my worst parts, she knows my best parts, and she knows all of that, that I can't put on a show that had freed me then to be motivated rather than to try to please her, because she already knows all my crap. Instead of that, and because God already knows my crap, then I could be free to be a husband that will genuinely love and care for her and for our family. And it was amazing. And I, I don't know how many of us we've been able to experience that, whether it's with our families or friendships, where you have someone that knows you so well that you can just be yourself. And so instead of trying to please or make that person like you, then your genuine motivation is to love them or to care for them. I mean, for, for married couples, I know for husbands or wives, this is constant tension. And it's so oftentimes that in, in our insecurities that that creates the greatest conflict. That's the greatest source of pain is because we are too proud to admit our insecurities. We're too self-sufficient that we're not willing to come before God and say, God, you know my insecurities. You know, you know how bad I am. And, and because instead of trying to put myself against my wife or my spouse, that I can just be myself because you know who I am and now I can love my spouse, not because I'm trying to make them or make myself look good in front of them, but because I genuinely want to love them because God has loved me. And those of us who haven't been married yet, you will encounter this in the future. <laughs> Amen. And you will encounter this with your friendships. Do you want to have good friendships? Do you want to have good relationships? Do you want to be able to love people? And the only way you're going to be able to love people genuinely, be motivated, be devoted to them, is if you know your security comes from somewhere else, comes from God. So if the imperfect knowing, my wife is imperfect, but very loving, if she is able to imperfectly know me and love me in that way, that allows me to have a proper motivation to be devoted, then how much more will a perfect love from a perfect father be able to free us? How much more? Tim Keller, he says this in The Meaning of Marriage. He talks about Marriage, but he talks about being known and being loved. He says, to be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved is, well, a lot like being loved by God. It's what we need more than anything. It liberates us from pretense, humbles us out of our self-righteousness, and fortifies us for any difficulty life can throw at us. I'm wondering, do we struggle with pretense? Trying to put on a show, trying to put a certain image of ourselves for other people to see. Do, do we feel proud on the other's extreme about how good we are because our prayers like this or because we're serving, we're, we're on a ministry team, we're doing all this stuff for God and look at how great I am. Do we get discouraged when difficulties come in our lives? Because we're constantly swayed by other things, external views of who we are, because we're constantly trying to be seen by other people. We're constantly evaluating ourselves by being heard by how great we can be, rather than saying, I am known by God, and that's the only thing that matters in my life, and that will fuel my prayer life, that will fuel my devotion, that will fuel everything else that I do in relation to who God is for my faith. 
Where are you trying to be seen, heard, and known? And I just one thing I just wanted to share is, I mean, I, I think honestly, many of us, we put our security in the wrong places. And, and don't raise your hand. Like, how many of us, we've been hurt church, by, hurt by church before? How many of we, we've had bad experiences with community before? And I know many of us were coming to our church and checking it out for the first time, and we're a little bit hesitant to fully commit. You know, the, the announcements, experiencing membership, join and commit and sign your life away. And I'm just kidding. <laughs> sign, signing your life away to Jesus. And you're struggling. You're like, oh, man, should I really commit to a church? And some of us, we, we've been coming, and we see our life groups. We love our life group community, but we just keep ourselves at a distance. We're like, oh, it's a great fellowship, but I don't know if I really want to commit to this church. And I'm wondering if the reason why you're not devoted to a church or any community is because you've been hurt before. And why? Because you put your significance in other people. It's because your core identity, your security is in other people, what they think of you. You've been hurt, why? Because of what people think of you, what they've said to you. But if you would put your relationship with God as primary, your security in Christ, then what does it matter what other people will say of you? And I will tell you, no matter what church you go to, there's no perfect church. Amen? Amen. There's no perfect church. Wherever you go to, there will always be something you don't like, something that you complain about, something that is not according to your preferences. And so until you put your identity and security in Christ, your motivation, you're saying, I'm seen, I'm heard by God, I'm known by the Father, then you will never be able to commit or make anything, any meaningful investment or impact on anyone, including your church community. It's because your motivation doesn't come from Jesus Christ. It comes from other people. I'm praying that we will have a kingdom motivation. What motivates you to pray? What motivates you to read your Bible? What motivates you to serve? Is it so that you can be seen or heard or recognized by others? Or is it because God sees you? God hears you. He knows what you need before you even ask. Let's have this kingdom motivation. Let's move on and read verses 9 and through 13. And uh, this is the Lord's Prayer. And I think many of us, we've actually probably prayed this many times before. Those of us growing up in church, we probably memorized this. Um, so I want us to read it together, all right? I'm going to read the Lord's Prayer together, verse 9. Through 13, okay? So it's going to be up there on the screen, and if you have your Bibles open or the notes on the mobile app, we can read it together. So starting at verse 9, ready? 3, 2, 1. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. All right. So because it's so familiar, I wanted to give us a little bit of interactive space to be able to share like, what our feelings are toward the Lord's Prayer. Because many of us were like, oh, it's just a, something I just grew up reciting over and over again. Some of you might be like, I have no idea what this is saying because I remember or I recite it in another language. <laughs> and you're like, why can't I say this in, I don't know, Korean or Bahasa or something else, right? But I, I, So you need to take out your phones. As you take out your phones, you're going to go to menti.com, and you're going to type in the code 63368299. I'm just going to ask four quick questions for us on, on what our view or conception of the Lord's prayer is, all right? So just give us just like another minute, you, or you can go to bit.ly slash shine dash October 11. And we're going to do a little poll for just our view on the Lord's prayer, okay? All right, so I'll give us another couple uh, seconds to do that. And, and some of the questions are really about, like, what is our interaction with the Lord's Prayer? Like, how do we understand it growing up? Did we memorize it, or did we pray through it? So, <clears throat> are we ready? Yeah? Thumbs up? Okay, mostly ready. All right, ready? Let's do this. So, the first question, I think you might see it on your phones. The first question is, how well memorized do you have the Lord's Prayer? Okay, so this could be in English, it could be in another language, but how well memorized do you have the Lord's Prayer? You can show it, yeah. How well memorized? So on one side it's not well at all, and the other is word for word. All right, we have some word for word people here. Praise the Lord. 
All right, around 3.6, so that's quite a bit. I think we have 100 some participants. All right, next question is, how much do you pray through the Lord's Prayer? Not only do you have it memorized, but how often, how often do you actually pray through the Lord's Prayer? Whether it's you actually like recite it, or if you actually just use it as a framework to pray, how, how often or how much do you pray through the Lord's Prayer? Either never or every day. Oh, very interesting. <laughs> All right, sermon's done, guys. <laughs> You're convicted. <laughs> Isn't it interesting? We, we memorize it, we know it, but we don't use it. At least most of us don't use it. All right, next question, third question, and, and you'll understand this when you see the fourth question a little bit more, but I just want you to answer, what is the relationship with God that you are most confident in? This is going to be a word cloud, and you can type things like, you know, father or friend or master, and just be a little bit honest. This is anonymous, so if you feel like he's really distant, if you feel like he's absent, like, how do you relate with God, mostly? Or is he more like a taskmaster? Or is he more of a, a cousin or something like that? I don't know why God would be a cousin, but... <laughs> Just type in, like, what's one word that describes your relationship with God or how you relate with him that, in the way that you're most confident in relating with him? Okay, so we have father. Oh, someone put Daddy. <laughs> All right, we have someone who sees God as an uncle. I don't know if that's an uncle that gives you a lot of gifts or stuff. Bestie, all right, BFFs forever. Um, Baba, anchor, truth, giver, Lord, disciplinarian, big brother. What else? Mysterious. All right. Friend, master, listener, family. Asian tiger dad, okay. <laughs> Some very interesting ways of relating with God. Okay, so the last question, the fourth question is, what is the relationship with God that you think the Lord's Prayer advocates for the most? What is the relationship with God that you think the Lord's Prayer advocates for the most? It's not a quiz, okay? There's not like, I'm going to penalize you if you get the wrong answer. All right, so I think it seems like most people are putting Father because we just read the passage that says, Our Father in Heaven, okay? I think all of you put that. We have, okay, we have, then we have some Heavenly Fathers, all right? Not just a Father, Heavenly Fathers, Savior, Spiritual Guide, Companion, Guardian, Lord, Endless Love and Grace, Judge, Miracle Worker, Light, Provider is pretty big up there. Okay, that's good. When we look at the Lord's Prayer, we see this oftentimes as, you know, a, a, process, a formula of this is how we ought to pray. And, and it rightly is so because the disciples, you know, in other accounts of the gospel, they're asking, how should we pray? And then Jesus gives, and this is how you should pray. But when Jesus is talking about in the context of the Sermon on the Mount, he's talking about the framework of the perspective that we ought to have. Because what is he talking about right before this? He talks about, like our motivation. It talks about our devotion to God. And really, as he's talking about devotion, what is going to allow you to be devoted to God? Well, it's how you view God. What is your relationship with God like? That's why we want to look at what is our kingdom relation? What does a kingdom relationship with God look like? I, I think when, when we looked at, the, you don't have to put the word cloud back up, but when we saw some of the words, it's like, you know, there are some like uncles or some like, you know, judges or Asian tiger dad. If we're going to be devoted to God, then our relationship with him has to change. If, if your devotion is to someone like a stranger or a master or Asian tiger dad or someone like it's going to be very hard to be devoted to someone like that. It's going to be tough. You're going to be trying so hard, but you're going to be discouraged. You're going to be burnt out. You're going to be cynical and skeptical. And I will go as far to say, almost as far to say as, you're praying to the wrong God. If you're praying to the right God, then it's easy to relate with Him. But if you find it hard or difficult, I'm wondering if it's because the way that you relate to God is not as what Jesus is prescribing here in the Lord's Prayer. So if we get this relationship right, we view God in the right way, then our prayer lives are going to completely change. 
And I want to just give us an encouragement. The Lord's Prayer is not a word-for-word repetition. You know, imagine if Jesus prayed like this and throughout, you know, in the passage that says Jesus went up to the mountain to pray all night and he was just praying the Lord's Prayer over and over again. No, in, in prayer in Garden of Gethsemane, yes, he says, Lord, your will be done, not mine. He prays prayers in John that are much more, you know, descriptive about what he's looking for. But it's not just a word-for-word. It's, it's also not a formula for the correct prayer. It's not like, oh, thou shalt only pray in this way. But what is he saying? So typically the, the prayer, the Lord's Prayer, is split up into two sections. The first section is verses 9 to 10. Let's see who is God and how we ought to relate with him as seen through the way that Jesus prays or describes us prayer. So verses 9 to 10 talks about our Father in heaven. And then he gives this description of hallowed be your name. Verse 9, hallowed be your name. And the New Living Translation says, may your name be kept holy. So it's talking about just God who ought to be holy, who ought to be majestic. And then he talks about your kingdom come, your will be done. If we look at this, it's, it's really, you know, sometimes we're like, who prays like this? Oh God in heaven, holy is your name, your kingdom come. Right? It, it sounds more like an entrance to a king. As if a king had just come in and all the subjects are like, Oh Lord, you are our Father. You are holy as your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. That's what it reads more like. And, and it has nothing to do with us. And, and my question is, do we honestly want God's kingdom to come? Do we actually want that? Do we desire that? I, I would say most of us, we pray my kingdom come prayers. Right? Even though you don't explicitly say this, you pray prayers like, my GPA come, Lord. My promotion, my paycheck come, Lord. My job offer come. My boyfriend come, Lord. My girlfriend come, Lord. I need that. But this is the thing. When you relate to God as your king, then you're saying, God, as a member of your kingdom, that I believe that if your kingdom flourishes because I am a subject of your kingdom, I am someone within your kingdom, then if your kingdom comes, then I am going to be part of that. I am the beneficiary of that. But if you don't believe that God is your kingdom, there's no way you're going to be able to pray, your kingdom come, Lord. And so I'm wondering if the reason why we pray such selfish prayers, my kingdom come, is because we don't really see God as our king. And that's the point that Jesus is trying to get at. He's trying to say, Jesus is your king. God is your king. And if you would know God is your king, then your prayer life would totally change. Let's look at the next section, verses 11 to 13. talks about giving us our daily bread, forgiving our debts, leading us not in temptation. Why is Jesus only asking for daily bread? God, why not a feast? Why not steak? I went to a restaurant called Mother of Pizza. It was great. It was this amazing, humongous pizza. I could not finish it. <clears throat> why not Mother of Pizza? God, why, why, why am I just asking for daily bread? Daily bread, probably for the Jews at the time, would remind them of the manna in the wilderness when the Israelites were traveling around. And why did God give them daily manna? Why did he give them daily bread? And why didn't he give them a feast? Why? Because he was trying to get them to trust in him as their king. He was trying to teach them trust and obedience, even if they did not see everything that was to come. Do you trust God as your king? Do you, when you pray your prayers, are you asking for provision because it's just something that you need? Or do you believe that he knows what you need better than what you know? He's the king. He knows everything. And we have limited information. So when we pray for provision, do we pray for all these things? Or are we saying, God, give me exactly what I need so I can learn to trust you? Proverbs 30, verse 8b to 9, and NIV, it says, Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, Who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. What's more important to you? Your allegiance to the King of Kings? And if that's more important to you, then will you trust that he will give you your daily ration? that you need to exist and to survive every single day. Prayer is a prayer of trust. Forgive us our debts. Who can forgive sins? If you sin against someone or if you committed a crime, who is arbitrating 
Yes, that person can forgive you, but ultimately you have to pay a punishment. Who is the only person that can absolve you of your punishment? In a courtroom, it's the judge. So by you praying that prayer of forgive us of our sins or our debts, you are acknowledging God as what? King. You're acknowledging him as the authority of your life. You're saying, Lord, if you are king over my life and you have forgiven me, then I also ought to forgive other people. There's no room for grudges. There's no room for bitterness. There's no room for unresolved issues. And then leading us not into temptation. How many of us know there's only two kings in this world? I know... Trump wants to make America great again. He's doing a great job of doing that, right? Other countries are trying to do all these things. But there's only two kingdoms in this world. It's the worldly kingdom of Satan, and it's God's heavenly kingdom. And when you pray, lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from the evil one, you're saying, Lord, please rescue me from the evil kingdom. Lord, would you be so merciful, even though I am sinful, that you would take me out and allow me to be part of your kingdom. Every line of this prayer needs to be put in a relationship where God is our king. And it's only when God is our king that this prayer will begin to make sense. And only then will you begin to pray the prayers that make sense, that God will answer. There's one more observation I wanted to make before I move on to the last section, is that the term father is repeated eight times throughout this whole passage. And I know a lot of you like put father as the number one thing because it says our father in heaven, and rightly so. And my question is, how many of us are related to, we, we can relate to God as our Father? Not just Father, because many of us, we say Father, Lord, Father, 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 multiple times, you know? Like, I don't know if in a conversation, I'm not trying to judge your prayers right now, but how many times in a conversation you're saying, Bo, 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 right? And you say Bo every other word. It's kind of weird. But how many of us, we relate to God as our Father? Or do we see Him as a distant figure? I mean, I... Um, I spent some time with um, my in-laws. It was really weird because in Korean, there's specific terms of endearment of calling your mother-in-law and your father-in-law. And they taught me to call my mother-in-law Omoni and my father-in-law Abonim because I guess that's how you're supposed to call them. It was really weird at first. It was really strange. I felt so like, oh, I don't know if I could do this. But then as, you know, like, the more I say it, the more they like it, right? You can tell when your in-laws, like, really like it. And you're like, oh, the more I say it, the more it just, you also feel connected with them. And I realize, oh, I, yeah, I begin to see them as my father and mother. And I'm wondering if many of us, the reason part of it, the reason why we don't see God as our father is because we don't call him by the term that we actually use for our own fathers. I know you might say, oh, but I call God father. But what do you call your actual parents? Do, do you say, hey, Father, can I have dinner? No, you say, hey, Dad, hey, Mom. And some of you say, Daddy, right? Or I don't know what, in, in your own language, you say, you know, Appa or Abba or whatever, right? Like, have you ever tried calling God Daddy? <laughs> Daddy God, right? Like, and I was like, yeah, it's cringe, right? You're like, oh, my God, I don't know if I could do this. I'm wondering if you would see God in that kind of way, in that close relational way, that your prayer life would change. That if we could see God as this person that is our close father, Tim Keller talks about this. He says, the only person who dares wake up a king at 3 a.m. for a glass of water is a child. We have that kind of access. If we could see God as our father and as our king, what would that do to our prayer lives? What would that do to how we pray? Because right now, I believe, we oftentimes, we pray, like, whether it's, like, fearful or very self-consciously. We're like, oh, God, I don't know if you can actually answer, answer this prayer. We're praying for someone else. We're like, oh, if you can do this miracle, if you can heal them. There's no conviction in that prayer. And on the other side, we pray for only the things that we need. It's a very self-centered prayer. God, I need this, I need that. And then what happens when you don't get it? You stop praying, you get discouraged, you start getting bitter at God. No wonder our prayers are so impotent. It's because we don't see God as our Father. It's because we don't see God as our King because we do not relate in Him 
relate to him in a way that's consistent with the kingdom. That's why there's no devotion in our prayer lives. That's why when we try to pray, we pray for a little bit and then we get bored, we, our mind drifts to other things, try to do it again. It's because our relationship isn't right. Let's finish off with the third point. Not only do we need a kingdom motivation, we need a kingdom relation, but we also need kingdom expression. It has to be expressed, this relationship, this motivation, it has to be expressed somehow for us to really know that this devotion, like we talked about in the beginning, is going to endure forever. Let's read uh, verses 14 and 18 and finish off this passage. It says, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head, wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. When we look at kingdom expression, there are implied ways now that Jesus talks about for how the people in the kingdom of God should express their devotion. Because the question is, if it's not expressed, are you really devoted? Like, if you never ever gush about your significant other at some point in your life, do you really, really, are you really devoted to them? If you are, you say you're devoted to Mac, or sorry, if you say you're devoted to PC and Android, but you use an Apple device, are you actually devoted? So Jesus gives two examples of this, how it should be expressed. He talks about forgiving others in verses 14 to 15. And, and some of us might read this passage and be like, oh my, oh no. Like, it sounds so conditional. It sounds like I have to earn forgiveness because if I don't forgive others' trespasses, then God won't forgive me. But if I do, then God will forgive me. So is this something I have to do to earn my works or earn my righteousness? But remember what we said, if you see things in the kingdom of God, you realize that the assumption is that we owe God everything. When he's the king, what did you do to someone? Does he owe you anything? No, everything that you have is his. And so if he's forgiven you, if he's taken you out of this evil kingdom of darkness and he's brought you into the kingdom of his marvelous light, then you owe him everything. He's forgiven everything for you. And then therefore your response, your expression is then to what? Forgive others. We see this in the parable of unforgiving servant, Matthew 18, 21 to 35. I'm not going to read it, but just in summary, it's about a parable that Jesus tells of a servant who owed a king so much money. The servant begged the king, please forgive me, and the king said, okay, I'll forgive you. And then that servant had another servant that owed him money, and what did that servant do? He threw that servant in jail. And Jesus tells that parable as a reflection of, if you're not willing to forgive others, if you're not willing to express your devotion, express this kingdom mindset, then you have not acknowledged Jesus as your king. God has already outlined the rules of the kingdom. It's available to you. Forgiveness is available to you. It's your responsibility to take it and to express it. That's why Christianity is not an internal religion. It's not something you can just say, I just believe and I don't have to do anything about it. No, it needs to be expressed. You have to do something about it. You can't go around your life and say, oh, I'm just, I believe in Jesus, but I'm going to hold these grudges. I believe this Jesus, but I'm going to keep this thing to myself. I'm going to believe this Jesus, but I'm not going to love anyone else. That's why in the previous way, we talked about what? Loving our enemies. You cannot say, I believe in the kingdom of God, but not express it in some way. And then the final example he gives is fasting. And this fasting passage is exactly the same structure as the previous prayer passage that we looked at. But there's one difference that I want to highlight. In verse 17, he talks about anointing your head and washing your face. And the question is, why do you do that? Why does, he exp- why does anointing your head and washing your face expressing devotion to God? And I want to read it in the NIV and the NLT. NIV, it says, and then read it together in the yellow. It says, but when you fast... 
Put oil on your head and wash your face so that it will not be obvious to others that you are fasting. The New Living Translation says, But when you fast, put oil on your head as you normally would groom your hair and wash your face so that your fasting will not be noticed by people. So he's not saying the special thing, but he's saying this anointed oil is something normal that people would do before they went out. Like, you know, ladies, you have the normal, like, foundation, mascara, like, all that kind of stuff. You put that as normal, so you ought to do that. But the problem was the Pharisees, they were unintentionally not putting it on to show off how busy and how devoted and how spiritual they were. But he's saying, no, don't do that. Express in a way that is presentable, that reflects the kingdom of God, that you are part of God's kingdom. And many of us were like, yeah, I, 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 put, I dress myself every single day. I use face wash. I, I put on my makeup. Guys, you're like, yeah, I wash my hair and then just wake up and walk out of the room in 10 minutes. Well, for us, some of us, it's not so much like how we do things. It's not so much how we get up in the morning. But for us, it's how we serve God and how that impacts the rest of our lives. And let me give an example. Some of us, we have this false idea that because we're serving God, because we're very involved in church, that we're not going to be able to be as presentable or as expressive in other areas of our lives. Like, I hear this all the time. Oh, I, uh, I can't do well in my midterm. I can't really participate as much in that group project. I can't really invest in my friendships because I'm so involved in life group and church. Oh, I, I can't get this promotion. I can't do well in my career. Oh, yeah, because I'm serving in church and doing all this kind of stuff. What you're doing is saying the exact same thing. Oh, because I'm devoted in this way. Oh, look at me. Woe is me. And oh, my life is like this because I'm serving in church. And oh, I got to do this for God because God said me so. Because oh, my leader told me so. That is the weakest argument. Your devotion to God should not be contingent on anyone who tells you anything. And your devotion to God should be just as important whether it's in church or outside of church, whether it's in your career, in your family, your friendships. And I just want to bring it up with some of us that are like, oh, I can't do well in my grades, I can't do well in my school, I can't do well in my career. Like, how are you focused in your job right now? Do you ever watch YouTube? Do you ever scroll through Instagram? Do you ever misuse your time at work? Or while you're in group projects, you don't pay attention because you don't like the people there? We should live such good lives in an expressive and presentable way because God is our king. Anything less is sin against God. It's saying God is not my king and he doesn't deserve my whole worship in every area of my life. Because what you're saying is you're only Lord of my church life and only when I'm presentable in that way and only that matters. Not all this other stuff doesn't matter. 1 Peter 2 verses 12. And anyway, it says, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. And I'm praying that, man, people will see us and they'll see the lives that we live and they'll be like, wow, that's so good. And I, wanna, I, want, I want to know what motivates you. What kind of relationships do you have that allows you to be like, what allows you to express yourself in this way? Not that you're just looking good in the morning, but why do, you, why, do you, why do you have a work ethic? Why do you try so hard? Why are you loving to people that are not so loving? Why do you spend all this time in prayer? It's meaningless. And you can say, but it's because God is my king. Because Jesus is my king. Some of us are like, Pastor Bill, it's not really impractical. It's hard. I don't know how to do it. The best way that you can let your good deeds and glorify God is if you, you give your all in every aspect that you do. I, I remember when I was a, a student, um, I really wanted to reach out to my friends. And it's something we, we always struggle with, right? Because we're like, I'm spending so much time in church, and I, I'm not a good witness to my friends, and you know, this is, I, I don't know what to do. And so I was trying to reach out to other people, friends, especially. Uh, I love doing sports, so I play like frisbee and basketball. And I remember one of the guys that I was playing with, he said, you know what, if you really want to be a good witness, you've got to get really good at that sport. 
Like, no one's going to respect you if you suck at that sport, right? You go up there and you shoot a three and then total air ball. <laughs> no one's going to respect you. No one's going to be like, oh, wow, like, you're so bad at basketball. Let me get to know you. And I was telling my friend, like, yeah, but I'm, I'm really bad at basketball, right? I shoot threes and they always air ball. I'm like, I don't know how I'm going to do this. And I was like, I mean, I, I, that pass, I took it away, but I, I, I play, I continue to play because I just enjoy playing it. But I realized, you know what, one way that I can be a witness, that I can just do good as best as I can, is I can just hustle as hard as I can. And I mean, those of you who play basketball, you know that guys don't play defense in basketball. Amen? <laughs> All right? If you know, guys don't play defense. So you play hard, you run hard, and you hustle, then you start to get recognized. And even though I can't shoot for crap, like, I start running, and the people start passing me the ball because I was open. Because I would run past the because no one was playing defense. And I would start to shoot, and I started getting a little bit better because you just play a lot, right? And I start to make layups because those are the easiest shots that you can make. You're standing right on the rim. Okay, you can make a layup. People start passing me the ball more. And then lo and behold, I start having conversations with people, and they'd be like, oh, like, where are you from? Like, what's your name? And I started to build good relationships with people that way. Not because I said, like, oh, here, I am Christian, and look at me, and look how great I am. It's because I hustled as hard as I could. And I'm wondering, how many of us, we hustle, we work hard, and we do things because God is our king, and we want to represent him well. I'm wondering if you do that. You, do, you, do you do well in exams because God is your king? Do you, do you win an award and you're motivated to do that because God is your king? Do you get a promotion? You work hard because God is your king. Do you land that deal that you've always been looking for because God is your king and you give him the praise and the tribute for that? Because that's what it means to live with kingdom devotion. It's not for other people because as soon as you make it about other people, what happens? You get discouraged, you get anxious, you get worried. But if you're doing it for a king who loves you, who knows you, he heard you, he's your father, it's no longer about all those other things. And what better, better example of living with kingdom devotion than Jesus himself? Not only does he preach it, but he lives it out. And the most beautiful thing is he is the king. And not only is he the king, but he lays his kingship down. His devotion is to the Father. He lays his kingship down, not for anyone else, not for any other motivation other than obedience to Christ, obedience to the Father. And it's because his relationship, and that's his expression of it. And we see this in Matthew 27, verse 35 to 37. And this is pretty much when Jesus is getting crucified. It says, And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head they put the charge against him which read, This is Jesus, King of the Jews. This is the most scandalous, radical king that ever existed in the history of the universe. This is the king who not only demands our kingdom motivation, our relationship with us, and the expression of our devotion to him, but he lays all of that down. He exemplifies it himself to the point where he lays his own life down for his subjects, for his people, which is you and me. Nothing that we deserve, nothing that we did. What did, what did you do for Jesus? Nothing. We did everything against him. Have we been fully devoted, fully loving him, fully selfless? No. But he still laid his life down for us. And it's that kind of king that deserves our full and complete devotion. And it's only when we see him as that kind of king that is the gospel message that he has died for us, even though he deserved all the kingly praise and glory. He died for it. He humbled himself even to death on a cross. That is the king that deserves our whole lives. That's why we do everything that we do. That's why we relate with him the way that we do, and that's why we express ourselves in the way that we express ourselves, whether it's through prayer and fasting, which I think we should ought to do, 
But it's not just those two narrow disciplines, but it's in every area of our lives that we do that. And that's why I want us to give us the one thing, is that when we develop a kingdom-centered devotion, our, your life will be decidedly different than the world's expectation. When we develop a kingdom-centered devotion, then our lives will be decidedly different than the world's expectation. I want to give us some next steps, just quickly. Uh, the first is, sorry, I don't have a cool acronym for this. It spells RPM, but I didn't come up with anything about RPMs. R stands for reflect on whether or not you have a kingdom motivation, relation, and expression. Those are the main points that we talked about today. Do you have that? Are you motivated in a way that's pleasing the Father, pleasing the King, rather than other people? Do you relate with God as your King and with your Father? Do you see Him as a stranger? Do you see Him as a mean person? Do you see Him as an Asian tiger dad? And do you express it? Or do you just keep it to yourself and somehow think, oh, my my faith is private and no one else should get involved in it. No, it should be expressed. P is pray the Lord's Prayer to Jesus your King at 5, 10 each day today. Or each day, sorry, I said today. It should be this week. Each day this week. We're praying the Shine Prayer at what time? 5, 13, 5, 14. I think Peace wants to correct it to 5, 14 because that's about the light. So start at 5, 10. Because in order to pray the shine, what is the shine prayer all about? God's kingdom coming here, spiritual awakening, healing, neighborhoods, issues, right? Evangelism, what is that all about? It's about God's kingdom. And so we need to pray this prayer to orient ourselves to say, God, you are my king. And as we orient ourselves, we pray through the Lord's prayer in this way to say, God, you are my king. I'm devoted to you. I'm not praying for anyone else. I'm doing these things, expressing myself, then naturally the shine prayer will what? Come about. I mean, I don't know how many of us, we've tried to pray the shine prayer, you're like, oh, God, I don't, it's so hard to want a spiritual awakening. I don't know what the issues are. And you just don't feel motivated. Why? Because what? You don't see Jesus as your king. But if we see him as our king, then what's going to happen? Then the shine prayer is going to come out. It's going to transform our world. It's going to transform our city. I'm wondering if that would happen. Thirdly, so not only reflecting praying the Lord's Prayer, but finally just make Jesus your king this week. And I want to make it just more general because there are different ways that in your life right now, you know that Jesus is not king of your life. There are certain idols, certain things that you hold above Jesus and above God right now that you need to pull that down. You need to tear that down because those are idols in your life. And you need to recommit to say, God, you are my king in all areas of my life. Starting today and tomorrow and every single day, that I live. Can we stand together? We're going to close out with some worship. think about Jesus is our king. I think the first I mean maybe image that it evokes is this idea of like in in the medieval times, right? This king who was all these knights and they pledged devotion, they pledge allegiance to this king and say, you know, whatever I do and everything I'll do I'll do for your kingdom. And for many of us that's probably a very old outdated idea. Because for us, the political systems of today are, you know, we want to see democracy, we want to see republics, we want to see things governed by constitutions. And we're like, I don't know how to, I don't know how to come to Jesus as my king. I don't know if I could be perfect. I think maybe that's what really hinders some of us, is that we feel like we got to do this perfectly or we have to pledge full allegiance and we can never meet that standard. But I think the good news is that the king knows you're going to fail. Every king knows they're going to fail. I mean, that's why they have laws to punish their subjects. But God, as our heavenly father, he's already punished his own son. 
and we escape every punishment that we ought to have faced. And so when we come to Jesus as our King, we come freely. And all we need to do is then just say, God, would you enter into my life as the King? Take the throne in my heart and let me submit to you as best as I can. I know I'm going to fail, but as best as I can every single day, I want to make this commitment to making you Lord of my life. Can I invite us to respond that way? Can I res- invite us to respond to say, God, I want, I want you to take place on the throne of my heart, on the throne of my life. And just pray a prayer that declares that. And some of us maybe are questioning, or maybe we've just been coming out to church, we haven't really considered ourselves a believer. I want to invite you to pray a prayer, something like that. Lord, would you be king of my life? I don't deserve anything. I've, I've sinned. I've failed. But you can take place the king over my life and make everything else in my life in the kingdom order. And I believe that God is going to speak to you. He's going to forgive you. That's the promise in, the, in Scripture. And if you want to receive Christ today, then praise God. We want to encourage you to share it with someone. Just come up and talk to myself or Pastor Seth after the message, and we would love to pray with you. But can we do that? Can we just respond and we just ask and invite God to be our king in our hearts. Can we just do that for the next couple of moments? Let's pray together. Thank you for listening to the Harvest Mission Community Church Podcast. For more information, visit our website at hongkong.hmcc.net.